Wicked wind topples trees. Holy We heard this terrible crack. My wife screamed. The community's hardest hit by the spring storm. Big ideas for Broadway. We'll have the strongest render protections in Canada in this plan. Vancouver's 30-year plan to transform the key corridor and why some say it should be shelved. And backlash against rebuilding the Royal BC Museum. Governing is about choices, and I think British Columbians are rightfully outraged. How Victoria's top attraction became a political football with hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. No let up to the unrelenting pressure on Canadians' household budgets as inflation continues to rise at the fastest pace in decades. As Aaron MacArthur reports, the basic necessities of life are among the things included in the biggest cost of living increase in 31 years. From the gas pump to the grocery aisle. Every part of everyday life is getting more expensive. April's inflation rate, the highest it's been in 30 years. That just, in the last two years especially, it just felt like everything has gone through the roof. Adding to the inflation rate of 6.8%, the cost of rental housing in B.C. also increased by more than 6%. Researchers say after two decades of rapidly rising home prices, Canadian homeowners are finally seeing the effects of widespread inflation. But the reality is housing inflation has been causing the majority to be better off, which is precisely why over the last two decades we have tolerated home prices leaving earnings behind. Food prices overall up more than 9% this April compared to last. Staples such as fruit, vegetables, meat and bread all up near double digits. Experts say people need to start reeling in their budgets if they haven't done it already. Yeah, I know it's not pleasant, it's uncomfortable, but it's not forever. You may need to do it for about six to nine months. While costs have surged, wages haven't kept pace. According to StatsCan, the average wage in Canada has only increased 3.3% in the last year, half the rate of inflation. Economists say there is a concern when wages start to rise to meet costs, creating an expectation of constantly rising prices. Supply chain issues and global conflict have made the current period of inflation easy to see. Economists say it will be a year or more before things start to level off. Expect the Bank of Canada to hike interest rates several more times this year to keep a lid on prices. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A public hearing got underway today at Vancouver City Hall on the massive and increasingly controversial Broadway Corridor Redevelopment Plan. The 30-year project would see tens of thousands of new rental units built, most of which would be in new high-rises. Imad Agahi joins us with more on the proposal and the big debate it has triggered. Imad. Well, Sophie, this plan has a potential to really change the face of Vancouver, particularly Broadway and those neighborhoods being connected by that new subway line. So it should be nobody surprised that more than 200 people signed up to be hurt. 
As construction crews continue to break ground on the route of a $2.8 billion subway line through Vancouver's Broadway corridor. Just acknowledging we do have over 200 speakers. City councillors also began their own monumental task of sorting through the details and opinions surrounding the now controversial Broadway plan. This is the second largest employment corridor in, in the province. It's so important uh, and we need a place for workers to live. On the last few months of their current terms, this may be the biggest decision yet. The plan maps how 485 city blocks along the corridor will need to transform over the next 30 years to meet population demands for rental housing, transportation and jobs. That would mean the decimation of these communities along Broadway. The main point of controversy, the potential for 20 to 40 story high rises. To replace some of the aging apartment buildings that currently house more than 30,000 people. This plan includes really robust protections and I believe that they're the strongest in North America. Kit Sauter co-chairs Vancouver's Renters Advisory Committee. He says historically renters have and will continue to have concerns, but in his opinion the plan can protect them. If council makes the right choices, we will make the developers pay for the protections of renters. In the past, we've seen, you know, renter buildings, uh, rental buildings torn down, replaced by strata towers. That's not the approach here. The approach here is to just protect the renters that want to stay in this area. The mayor says those renters will have the right to return to new buildings for the same rent or below what they paid now. Opponents of the plan disagree. I would predict, if it is passed, that then the development industry will start to put up its hand and say, you know, this rental protection thing, the way you've written it, doesn't work. Now, Ahmad, as you mentioned, the biggest issue that's emerged of late is what happens to the existing renters in that area. So what kind of research do we have on how many people we're talking about? Yeah, data in the plan shows that there are 30,000 renter households in that Broadway corridor. And uh, the area has the city's 25% of the city's purpose-built rental housing, and more than 80% of those buildings are more than 50 years old. So it gives you a snapshot into how many people are going to be affected by this, what is riding on this vote, and uh, exactly how long it will take will depend on if the councillors can be confident. They have all that information. All right, we'll see what happens. Imadagahi reporting at Vancouver City Hall. Well, windy conditions made a house fire in Maple Ridge today particularly difficult for firefighters and troublesome for neighbours. The fire broke out just before noon in a house near 123rd Avenue and 227th Street. 17 firefighters and four trucks were called out, but the house was fully involved within minutes. Neighbours say the wind was blowing black ash throughout the area, creating concern for other homes. The sound of popping noises or small explosions inside the home was also causing concern. Was there any hazardous material or any? It's quite possibly, yeah. We don't know exactly what those things were. Uh, we heard the same, obviously, and uh, we were keeping our crews safe from that. Uh, but at this point, I couldn't tell you what that was. It was, yeah, it went up in minutes. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty scary. And then we had to get the kids out, so that was, it all happened pretty fast. Fire officials say it appears everyone inside did get out. A neighbor says the occupants of the house left in a hurry after the fire broke out. No word on the cause. Investigators will try to determine that once they can get safely inside.
We are learning more today about the two people killed in the fire that ripped through an SRO in Gastown last month. And as Grace Key reports, the family of one of the victims is now questioning how the tragedy happened and how it was handled. Dennis Gay wanted to spread his love for guitar to anyone who was willing to learn. The 53-year-old taught himself how to play after studying piano at the Royal Conservatory of Music. An amazing accomplishment for someone with severe hearing loss. He is really truly loved by the caseworkers who know him at UGM. They're heartbroken. They were losing sleep when he couldn't be found. They tried everything to track him down. And they knew him to be warm. He was very kind-hearted. He liked to tell stories. If you could sit down and chat with him, he would he could tell a real he could spin a real yarn. Vancouver police have confirmed Dennis and 68-year-old Mary Garlow both perished in the Winters Hotel fire in April, a single-room occupancy building in Gastown. A statement from Dennis's family reads in part, Dennis always saw the good in others. He was sweet and kind in nature and had a smile for everyone. He was very soft-spoken. He would sit back and be the observer in the room. We love him dearly and he will be forever missed. Garlow is being described as a dedicated mother who is often referred to as mom by those she knew in the downtown east side. Both families have unanswered questions about the tragedy. For the sake of others, changes need to be made. Everyone needs and deserves to be safe and accounted for during emergencies. Why was there no search of the building? All lives matter. These people matter. Both bodies were found in the demolition site on April 21st. Their identities were confirmed through DNA. It's believed an unattended candle started the blaze. Grace Key, Global News. Well, check the calendar and it shows May 18th, but a winter-type storm has created some big problems on B.C.'s south coast. The wind knocked out power to tens of thousands of B.C. hydro customers and left at least one Vancouver Island resident shaken. Kristen Robinson has the story and some incredible video, too. The wind howling so hard on Nanaimo's Cathars Lake. It, it sounded like waves crashing against rock. Garth Ross got his camera out. I only had it running for maybe 30 seconds when the trees went down. Holy <laughs> Caught me by surprise is you'll hear on the tape. Holy The two large trees landed on a home on the other side. We heard this terrible crack. My wife screamed because the tree came down. It was looking like it was coming right towards her there. Crashing into the bedroom. Fortunately, RCMP say an elderly man inside was in the living room at the time and escaped injury. He's safe, he's safe. The wind was just too strong. Who knows, that thing might fall again, the other one there. And... The wild gusts toppling trees from Vancouver Island to Surrey. Very loud. Yes, wind, yeah. yeah. Left and right, left and right. The trees. <laughs> yeah, the trees. Scary? Yeah, scared. I'm so scared. It's rare to see a winter storm in May, but Environment Canada says it's a pattern we've been locked into since early April. We've had our fair share of cold, wet, uh, and sometimes stormy weather. Uh, none of the storms have been as strong as this one in terms of wind. Uh, this one also came with a good shot of precipitation. BC Hydro crews worked to restore service to close to 70,000 customers whose power was knocked out by the spring blast. Holy Kristen Robinson, Global News.
certainly makes things interesting for senior meteorologist Christy Gordon, who joins us now. Christy, uh, mm -hmm. so how strong did those winds get today, and, and are they now past us? Uh, not totally past us, Chris. I wanted to just quickly mention in total uh, power outages, 121,000 people without power. Still at this moment, 61,000 without power and a number of them expected to be without power overnight. Nanaimo, Duncan, Qualica Beach, Galliano Island, some of the hardest hit regions in terms of the power outages. But let's look at those peak wind gusts. It's really southern Vancouver Island that I wanted to point out with an 81 kilometer an hour gust at the Victoria Airport. That's and potentially could be a record-breaking uh, gust at the, for this time of year. And when we look at the interior or the lower mainland regions, we, we're seeing 60 to 70 kilometer an hour gusts. Now, Chris, when I come back, this storm also brought snowfall. We've got the latest numbers in as to where the snowpack is at. I'll show you those numbers. And one thing for sure is they have gone up in the last couple of weeks. All right, we'll check in a little later. Thanks, Christy. Burnaby RCMP are hoping someone will recognize two suspects accused of stealing mail from two residential buildings. Take a look at these pictures. According to police, two men broke into the buildings in the 7200 block of Collier Street, March 21st. They pried open the mailboxes and stole all the mail. If you recognize either of these suspects, you're asked to call Burnaby RCMP or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. So many Canadians are facing passport problems with documents that expired during the pandemic. But even camping out overnight isn't enough to get paperwork done for some. Why, it's so hard to clear the backlog in just over a minute. An exotic-looking cat scaring people on the streets of Metro Vancouver. Why, there was no need to be afraid coming up. Also, the royal visits. Charles and Camilla on a whirlwind trip to Canada and why some say... They should be staying longer. Right now, though, the misery continues at Canadian passport offices with would-be travelers going nowhere. Backups have people lining up for days, even sleeping in their cars, and in some cases, losing thousands of dollars. And as John Waugh reports, despite government claims of hiring more staff, the numbers don't appear to add up. The wheels of government are known to move slowly. We stayed here overnight. Um... And it's just been, it's been horrible. But tell that to one-year-old Avia and her pregnant mother, who've been waiting in a passport line outside for 30 hours and counting. My back hurts, I'm shaking, uh, like I, I've been rained on, my daughter's freezing, I have to run into Walmart to change her every now and then. She's not alone. Everyone in this line has an airline ticket to travel in the next 24 to 48 hours. My flight is slated for today at 2.25 p.m. And I have been in the rain, Monday in the rain, yesterday in the wind. Today, I thought I was even early. A promise they'd be given priority has instead left them waiting outside, some for days, in hopes of getting an expedited passport from the Service Canada office in Surrey. Seriously? I'm a Canadian, I'm proud to be a Canadian, but I've never had to go through this. Service Canada has blamed an unexpected surge in applications due to the easing of pandemic travel restrictions. These people call it a poor excuse. That doesn't add up. They've let in five people from 8.30 and they've never come out here again. 
Despite Service Canada claiming to have made hundreds of new hires, passport applicants say the Surrey office is badly short-staffed. There's only about maybe three at a time going, including the one that's just checking you in. In a statement, Employment and Social Development Canada writes, staffing can fluctuate from day to day due to vacation, training, illness and other unforeseen circumstances. At the start of the day, the site identified a significant number of unplanned absences. Despite claims that nine counters were open, Global News observed only two. One for passport pickups, another for intake, and more than a dozen others left empty. We'll ask questions, and but they all say, I don't know. One day of unexpected absences doesn't explain why Sienna Saunders had to wait for days. The stress over her sick grandfather taking off, like the $1,000 flight she missed Wednesday morning. John Hua, Global News. Now, whether or not you need that passport probably depends on how comfortable you are traveling as we slowly make our way out of this pandemic. Keith Baldry joins us with a closer look at some of the latest data from the COVID-19 modeling group. Uh, Keith, and the key takeaway from this group is that the BA2 wave appears to have peaked. Yeah, we're still getting numbers uh, daily, of course, not being reported daily, but there's still a lot of COVID out there, COVID-19 out there. But the BC COVID-19 modeling group with people like Dr. Sally Otto and such are suggesting that the data they're seeing suggests that the second Omicron wave has peaked, the BA2 wave has peaked. So here's some of their findings. Uh, they've discovered that perhaps the second wave is peaking at a lower level than the first Omicron wave. Basing this on what they're seeing with case numbers, people over the age of 70, wastewater surveillance, all suggesting infections are declining. Uh, population immunity is growing as well. Uh, we caught up with Health Minister Adrian Dix today, who basically says their data matches what his people are finding as well. We're achieving stability, albeit at high levels. Here's the minister. I understand that it's consistent with that view that, uh, that we're seeing uh, stability, I think, um, in terms of, especially in terms of hospitalizations, but stability at a level that's relatively high and that we have to continue, people have to continue to take care. Uh, in, in, in my strong opinion, continue to wear masks in indoor public spaces where they're seeing people they haven't seen before because we have highly transmissive variants of concern. All right, Keith, we just want to switch gears away from COVID for a moment to some breaking political news uh, mm -hmm. that's just continuing to develop, I'm sure, right now in the province next door. Premier Jason Kenney has resigned after winning a very slim majority in that UPC leadership yep. review. Yeah, just moments ago, Jason Kenney announcing that he is stepping down. He only got 51.4% of the mail-in ballots, just announced uh, late this afternoon. Uh, again, 51.4%, not high enough to continue to, to lead effectively. Technically, he does meet the constitutional rules that would allow him to stay on, but he made it clear today that number is far below, below what is needed to govern effectively. Jason Kenney making a statement just moments ago. 51% of the vote passes the constitutional threshold of a majority. It clearly is not adequate support to continue on as leader. And that is why tonight I have informed the president of the party of my intention to step down as leader of the United Conservative Party. I'm sorry, but friends, I truly believe that we need to move forward united. We need to put the past behind us. And our members, a large number of our members, have asked for an opportunity to clear the air through a leadership election. 
So again, pretty dramatic stuff. No date, of course, has been set for a leadership uh, election or convention. Uh, that'll be determined by the party's executive. This is literally happening just moments ago. So that party now very much uh, a state of not chaos, but certainly uncertainty going forward. Whoever replaces Jason Kennedy, I think that will be about the seventh or, seventh or eighth Alberta premier since 2004. In that time, BC's had three. Incredible. All right. Uh, we'll see what happens next in Alberta. A new Battle of Alberta unfolding. Exactly. Thank you very much, Keith. What a day for Battles of Alberta. All right, uh, just ahead, more political jabs over the Royal BC Museum. You could actually complete the seismic upgrades on, on pretty close to 100 schools for a billion dollars. What the NDP government could get instead if it didn't spend nearly 800 million on a rebuild. And the champagne mishap that knocked a cyclist out of the race right after his historic accomplishment. Traffic is moving well in both directions over at the Patello Bridge this evening. Some leftover volume on the Columbia on-ramp and southbound on McBride as well. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert prepare for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. This May, join me for the BC Cancer Foundation's Workout to Conquer Cancer. Sign up on your own or as a team. And let's move every day this May and help change cancer outcomes. Register today at workouttoconquercancer.ca. The criticism keeps growing after the province's announcement last week of the major Royal BC Museum redevelopment project. Many asking why the nearly $800 million rebuild is a priority while BC is struggling with so many other issues that could be solved with the money. Richard Zussman has more. It is a decision worth nearly $800 million, with seemingly as many concerns. There's going to be many taxpayers left scratching their heads, wondering how the British Columbian government can possibly think that spending almost a billion dollars that it doesn't have on a museum that nobody is asking for is a good use of taxpayers' money. The B.C. government once again on the defensive of the decision to build a new Royal B.C. Museum. The opposition painting this picture. At $33.3 million a unit, build 24 elementary schools. At $82.8 million a school, 10 secondary schools, or seismically upgrade 69 schools at $11.4 million apiece. You could actually complete the seismic upgrades on, on pretty close to 100 schools for a billion dollars. We again have made unprecedented investments in building new schools, upgrading schools, putting additions on schools, and investing in seismically upgrading schools. We're continuing to do that work with an $800 million investment over the next three years. Nearly $800 million could mean three additional kilometers of the Surrey to Langley Skytrain or 17 kilometers of widening Highway 1. That amount of money builds seven small hospitals, one large hospital, and 405 urgent primary care centers. Why is the government uh, choosing uh, not to, to use this billion dollars uh, for uh, the, uh, the SFU medical school that they promised that would have, uh, would have been pumping out graduates by next year? The largest capital plan in BC history, which includes a revitalization of a precious asset that belongs to all British plumbers. 
And $800 million may just be the beginning. For projects of this size, experts say there will be overruns and the final bill will be over a billion dollars. I've been involved in large capital projects building museums and I know how they go. Um, not everything can be predicted. Uh, the inflation, inflation factors, um, the cost of steel. And even at the current price tag, this project would be the most expensive museum ever built in this country's history. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. To mark one year since the public announcement of this the discovery of 215 possible unmarked burials at the former Kamloops Residential School site, Tecumlips to Schwetmick will be hosting a day-long memorial on Monday. As Kylie Stanton reports, we're also learning more about the delicate archaeological work planned for the site in the coming months. A warning, some people may find elements in this story to be triggering. It started with 215 unmarked graves. The number has been steadily rising ever since. But on Monday, the Tecumlips to Schwepnik will be honoring the number one, the first anniversary of the confirmation of the missing on the grounds of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. You know, it's something that shook everyone to the core. To mark the somber milestone, a public memorial will be held May 23rd, starting at sunrise and lasting into the evening, featuring ceremonies, drumming and dancing, but also with access to mental health and support services. This is our cultural tradition and protocol to, after the year of going through the um, emotions of the grief loss and and you know now we're going to be um, honoring the ancestral children the missing the 215. Since those first discoveries it's forced non-indigenous Canadians to look at the country's often violent colonial past. While there have been some meaningful steps towards reconciliation including the Pope's formal apology. There's concern opportunities are being missed. The Pope will not be visiting BC during his Canadian trip this summer. And the current tour of Prince Charles and Camilla also left the province off the itinerary. There's an accountability there in terms of uh, colonization of, of this place we call Canada and the uh, purposeful genocidal policies that were imposed on Indigenous people. There's a, a lot that can be done, that should be done when we're talking about reconciliation from an Indigenous point of view. Once the year milestone is marked, the focus will shift to more archaeological work and ground-penetrating radar in an effort to finally try and bring the children home. We have, you know, shared truths and now it's moving forward to honor the dignities, but it's also about healing. Kylie Stanton, Global News. And we understand these stories might be triggering for our viewers, and there is support available to you for survivors and their families. That number is toll-free, 24 hours a day, and you can speak in confidence when you call 1-800-721-0066. Several new developments in the war in Ukraine, from a Russian soldier guilty of war crimes to a shortage of food in battered cities. That's next on the News Hour. And be adventure smart. Local search and rescue specialists release videos that could save your life. Traffic is steady both ways here at the Portman Bridge after clearing away some earlier problems. It's just a little busy eastbound on the approach from the Coquitlam side. 
Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $5 million plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A Russian soldier accused of killing a 62-year-old civilian is now the first member of the country's forces to stand trial for war crimes. Still, Moscow continues to deny that it's targeting non-military civilian infrastructure. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. This moment marks a symbolic victory for Ukraine as a 21-year-old Russian tank commander stands trial for war crimes in the death of a civilian. He's pleaded guilty and could face life in prison. Ukraine claims it's identified 10,000 possible war crimes, which Russia denies. In a counter move, leaders in rebel-held Donetsk say the fate of those who defended the Azovstal steel plant will be up to a court. Russia's defense ministry saying there have been 700 or more surrenders. Dozens are in hospital. Nobody is mistreating me physically or psychologically, the soldier says, though it's unclear if he was speaking freely. Beyond the plant, in the vast wasteland that was Mariupol, the city's mayor says he's concerned about disease outbreak, saying Russian occupiers have not reconnected utilities and mass burial sites could impact water supplies. Deaths from a war, Europe argues, has cost the entire world. Putin's war is, as we all see, heavily disrupting the global energy market. The EU is now pledging to move quicker to end reliance on Russian energy. While the UN is trying to secure a path to put Ukrainian grain back on the market, easing the stress on a growing food crisis around the world. Because it can't get out of the country. Why can't it get out of the country? Because Russia is blockading the ports from which uh, it would leave. Meanwhile, the shadow is growing over Moscow. Finland and Sweden have formally submitted papers to join NATO with strong support from both Ottawa and Washington, a city both of the country's leaders will visit Thursday, as the West shores up defense of its allies, further isolating Russia. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. While the war in Ukraine may be a world away, people here in B.C. are doing what they can to help. A Kolomna couple has opened their home and hearts to a pair of refugees they'd never met until just a few days ago. Margot and Rick Sentis connected with the two women through Facebook. After that, everything happened quickly. I read a post from um, Olga, and she said that she and a girlfriend wanted to come to Canada and didn't know anyone and had no help. So I answered the post and we started communicating. And a week or so later, they were here. That amazing people meet us and give for us everything what we need. And they do maximum good what they can. So we feel us here very good, very safe. Even the two Ukrainian women only knew each other for about a month. They both had to leave behind their significant others. The Kelowna couple is housing them at no cost. And their friends and family have also rallied to offer support. That's what it's all about. Also still ahead, uh, generally speaking, warm welcome for visiting royals. A very quick visit from Prince Charles and Duchess Camilla has people wondering, what's their rush? Also tonight, go out into the wilderness, but make sure you get back with a series of videos that could save you.
Just ahead of the May long weekend, Adventure Smart is launching a series of new videos highlighting safety tips for some of the province's most used hiking trails. Erosion from rain and snow melt has turned this section of the trail into a creek bed. The trails are being highlighted not only for their popularity, but also because they are the locations that generate the most search and rescue calls. People planning to head out onto those trails are being encouraged to watch the videos so they know what they're in for on their adventure. And we looked into the, the finer details of these trails and we've hiked them, filmed them, edited them, and now we've launched them. And this will give you an in-depth trip planning resource to research the trail before you go, help you to make some really key decisions while you're on the trail, but also to help you in case there's an emergency. The trails featured include Eagle Bluffs, Juan de Fuca, the Stuwamish Chief, House Sound Crest, Grouse Grind, and six more of the province's most heavily traveled routes. And fingers crossed we might get some good weather to get out and go for a nice hike. Let's bring in mm -hmm. Christy Gordon with more on our forecast. Once these winds finally die down, Christy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be really important to note also, though, Sophie, is that if you're headed out, there is still a ton of snow in the mountains right now. And that really was the second largest impact of this system that we moved through. So what we looked at was very strong winds. By the way, the interior regions also saw wind gusts up to 70 kilometers an hour. There's still about 3,000 without power there. But uh, it's the snow. We saw significant snow from this system across the South Coast Mountains, across southern B.C. And we have a new update as of May 15th. Here's a quick look at the numbers in terms of the snowpack. So uh, all of southern BC now above normal in terms of snowpack. Here's a look. So south coast mountain ranges up to 330% of normal Vancouver Island, up to 169% of normal. In the southern interior, it looks like a lot of the lower mountain snow has melted, but they still have significant snowpack in those higher mountain regions. And this just gives you an idea. This is snow water equivalent across Vancouver Island using Heather Mountain uh, rain gauge or gauge at this point and the blue line is what I want you to note so it's starting to go up even further as we continue through May whereas typically we should see a decline at this point and that's the case at the Mission Creek uh, gauge in through the interior regions again the area you see in pink is sort of the average whereas the blue line which is right now continues to go up so that's the concern is that we have such a substantial snowpack and if we do see a drastic warm-up which as we head into the the weekend we are going to see a warm-up but it's not significant enough to really accelerate those snow melt rates so that's what we want is the snow melt rate to stay low over the next little while that looks to be the case in terms of our forecast over the next little while we don't have a drastic warm-up which we do want we don't want but we do want this that's for sure a bit of a warm-up and a bit more sunshine and that's what you'll get throughout your long weekend except for a bit of shower activity um, on Monday tonight's central windows weather window comes to you from Penticton. Thanks to Kira for that. That was last night's sunset. Back to you guys. Beautiful colors. Thank you, Christy. All right. The sighting of what was thought to be a cheetah or some other big type of cat caused a bit of a ruckus in Vancouver earlier today. The animal was spotted in the Shaughnessy neighborhood, prompting a response from both Vancouver police and the Conservation Officer Service. Now, the cat was eventually captured and was determined to be a savanna cat. That's a hybrid between a house cat and a serval. The wayward feline has now been returned home and is reunited with its owner. Beautiful animals. All right.
everybody, not everybody, but a lot of Western Canada is ready for the Alberta or the Battle of Alberta, but it's the battle in the boardroom <laughs> in the CFL we're talking about tonight. Too. Yes, well, I'm sure there wasn't as much body checking in the boardroom, but uh, the Battle of Alberta is going to be fun. Oh, I fumbled my pen. Well, we are yeah. talking about football after all. Uh, so the CFL, it's just happened. They have come to an agreement with the Players Association, so the strike is pretty much over. The players still have to ratify. We're going to still go up to a BC Lions camp in Kamloops to see how the players are feeling about practicing on their own. Look forward to that. Thanks, Squire. Also tonight, reaction to the royal visit and what Charles and Camilla are doing while they're here. We have a deal. We have a deal. We have a deal between the uh, CFL and the Players Association. It's a tentative deal because there's still some voting that has to be done by the players themselves. But this ends the players' strike, which started on the weekend when the old contract ran out. So, yes, it has to be ratified, but I think that'll probably happen for sure. Now, during this waiting game, the BC Lion players actually had already gathered in Kamloops, which is the site of their training camp, and they had been doing workouts on their own, basically to stay sharp for when the coaches are allowed to join them, which is now very soon. But um, this was the feeling amongst the players before the tentative deal was announced, which was announced about, I don't know, 20 minutes ago. We'll go through it again, we'll go through it again. Hey, hustle, 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 hustle. Yeah, I mean, we're able to kind of, you know, walk, walk through as an offense. You know, we're, we're just trying to stay together as a group, um, do as much as we can, uh, and... Hope you get this thing figured out. This is what the CFL strike looks like for the BC Lions. It should be midweek of Lions training camp. Instead, it's more like off-season workouts. To their credit, the players are doing their best to stay busy. But without any real structure or coaches and staff on the field, there's only so much that can be accomplished, mostly just breaking a sweat and keeping the body limber. So we got to make sure that we're on top of our, our game and, and learning our playbook and keeping the young guys, uh, you know, stringing them along as well. So, uh, yeah, we've just been going through some walkthroughs and, uh, and we'll continue to do that until uh, however long this lasts. And this is about all that's happening in Kamloops right now. That and waiting around for a new collective bargaining agreement because without it, this is all the players can really do. It's tough. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's no CBA in place, so... Uh, we are uninsured, so any kind of injuries that occur, anything like that that happens, you know, we're not covered, we're on our own. So, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be safe. We have to protect each other. But at the same time, got to ramp it up a little bit, you know. We got to get ready to play football uh, in a few weeks. So um, we're doing the best we can. Whenever the time comes that we'll actually be able to play, we'll be ready, and I look forward to that. Jay Janower, Global Sports. And it looks like that should be pretty soon, which is good news. The uh, Whitecaps are getting ready to face FC Dallas at BC Place Stadium tonight. The game will be on AM 7.30. It starts at 7 o'clock. The lineups for the two teams have been decided, and the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps are going to make four changes from the game that they played against San Jose on the weekend, which they tied 3-3. Lucas Cavallini will be the lone striker up front. Dahomey and Caicedo will be behind him. Cody Cropper will start in goal again. Thomas Asala is going to be out because of that hand injury until mid or late June. Okay, game one of this series, Rangers and Canes. And the first goal in the first period by Philip Heedle. 
Nice pass from Lafreniere. That made it 1-0, and that was a score until late in the third period. Finally, the Hurricanes broke through the Rangers' defense, which kind of disappears on this play, and Sebastian Ajo was able to jam in his own rebound. So it's, uh, do I have the right score there? No, that's not the right score. It's 1-1 after three periods, not 2-2. It will be 2-1 when it's over, yep. though. Um, Penticton V's last night, the Nanaimo Clippers game three of the Fred Page Cup for the BCHL Championship. Keegan Gary here tying it. Nice play with him and Charles to make it 2-2 in the third. But in overtime, Penticton, Stefano Bottini will score the winner with that goal. Stefano Bottini, a game three overtime winner. The V's are now one win away from the championship. They're up 3-0 in the series. They have won 15 straight playoff games in the BCHL. Uh, like he was at the Masters, Tiger Woods is a long shot to win the PGA Championship that starts tomorrow. It'll be different though, because Tiger is in better shape than he was at Augusta, and Southern Hills is an easier course to walk than Augusta National is. I've, I've won with a broken leg before, so um, keep on going out there, keep pushing. Um, I know how to play the golf course. If I can just putt well, um, you never know. We're able to put in a little bit more work, and it's only going to get better as time goes on. So uh, as the months pass, and um, it's going to get better. On Tuesday, Eritrea's Biniam Germay made history by becoming the first black African cyclist to win a stage at the Giro d'Italia. He won the 10th stage in a sprint to the finish with Matthew Vanderpool, but he couldn't race the 11th stage because of a serious eye injury suffered on the podium after the race was over, where Germay was opening a bottle of spumante, which is a traditional way to celebrate. The cork flew off the bottle and struck him directly in the left eye, causing a hemorrhage. He will recover fully from the injury, they say, but from now on, the bottle will be uncorked before the winning rider arrives on the stage. And ironically, the guy he beat in the sprint to the finish he got hit by the cork after winning the first stage, but not in the eye. So, maybe, yeah, maybe they do need to rethink this cork thing. Yeah, that was, that was extremely dangerous. We tried to slow it down, but it happened so fast, you can't even see it if you slow it down. Like Yikes. a bullet. All right. Thanks, Squire. Up next, a whirlwind trip by the Royals that has some saying, why don't you stay a while? And Drew is standing by with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. And Thanks, Sophie. It's back to the bargaining table. Unifor says it's encouraged. The employer has agreed to meet again with the mediator to negotiate an end to the bitter transit strike in the sea-to-sky corridor. And more criticism over the province's proposed nearly $800 million Royal BC Museum project. The Chilcotin First Nation is voicing its frustration, saying the museum has been in poor standing with many Indigenous people for years. Chief Joe Alphonse saying, quote, it's a slap in the face to see such an astronomical amount of spending on something as frivolous as the Royal BC Museum. We'll have more on that story when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, Chris. All right. Thanks for that, Anne. Canadians lined the streets to get a glimpse of Prince Charles and Duchess Camilla as the royal couple toured Ottawa on the penultimate day of their very quick visit. While most provided a warm welcome, one couple showed up to protest. Global's Kyle Benning has more. A warm welcome in the capital for the royal couple. The Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall spent their second day on the Canadian tour in Ottawa. A number of items on the agenda, including a ceremony at the National War Memorial, 
a Ukrainian church service and meeting members of its community. It's Paris' first day as Mama's life. Meeting with some school children and parents <laughs> and a stroll through Byward Market. For the lucky few, meeting Prince Charles and Duchess Camilla was a thrill. But I don't know how to still proceed this, like everything that happened. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really crazy. These Montreal teens were on a school trip and found themselves shaking hands with royalty. The prince asked us, by uh, Taina and me, they asked us if we were doing any studies, if we were going to school, and why we weren't going to school, and we said because we're in a school trip. But while many were buzzing about meeting the couple, some are questioning the trip's duration. Royal watchers are wondering why the prince and duchess aren't spending more than three days in the country, given the themes of the tour are indigenous reconciliation and climate change. There's been a lot of people saying, look, you know, this is the last royal tour for the Jubilee. It should have been longer. There hasn't been much input from Clarence House or from the Canadian government. Some people in Canada saying it's a missed opportunity. And there were a few who offered a colder welcome. These two protesting the monarchy as the couple met with members of the Ukrainian community. The prince and duchess are set to end the evening with a reception for Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, marking her seven decades on the throne. Kyle Benning, Global News. It is a big country to tour and three days is not enough. Not nearly enough. Not <laughs> Couldn't do Vancouver <laughs> Island in that. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, last word on weather mm -hmm. before we set you free, Christy. Thanks. So we still do have a chance of rain overnight. But other than that, we've got a couple, well, several really nice days on the way through to Sunday, which is great as we head into a long weekend. And temperatures will finally climb back to near seasonal values. 16, 17 degrees all over the weekend will feel balmy compared to what we've been experiencing. Sounds amazing. All right. And, and a big wind. update in the Battle of Alberta <laughs> Square. Well, it was 2 nothing before the first minute was out for Calgary. So your hometown team is off to a good start in the Battle of Alberta. My buddies are happy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us tonight, everyone. Have a good night. Have a good night. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.